the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Hello, and welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today, we'll hear from my good friend, Dr. Randy Hetherington. Randy is currently Assistant Professor at the University of Portland in Oregon. He joined the UP faculty from Alberta, Canada, and has served as an educational administrator for 17 years. He earned his Ed.D. in 2014 from the University of Alberta in Educational Administration and Leadership. His current teaching assignment includes educational research courses at the graduate level. Randy's areas of research include the superintendency, organizational efficacy, and school improvement. He is a recipient of a Distinguished Leadership in Education Award, co-facilitated the Educational Leadership Academy in Alberta for seven years, and served on the Teaching Quality Practice Review Boards in Alberta. Outside of all his personal accomplishments, Randy is one of the most caring and thoughtful educators I know. Our conversations are always great, and I think this one is no exception. Here's my conversation with Randy Hetherington. Hey, Randy, how are you today? I'm doing just great, Corey. How about you? That's great. No, I'm doing well. Thanks for uh, speaking to me today. Let's start off uh, our conversation with talking about something you did uh, before you were even a teacher, perhaps. Uh, tell me about your DJ career. <laughs> well, the DJ career certainly started... Uh, my father had one of the can music businesses, so I had a lot of experience doing dances and weddings. And I've been to more weddings most people go to in their <laughs> entire life. Uh, and uh, it sort of gave me the love of, of not only playing music, but playing it so that other people could enjoy it. And that led to a, a wonderful... Uh, hour-long show at the university radio station uh, called the g-spot and we won't get into too much more about that but uh, it was a blues and jazz uh, kind of hour that we did at the university and it was a lot of fun and I guess at the end of the line uh, during my my high school teaching career I even got a couple of kids interested and we got a bunch of radio equipment and that stations were getting rid of and set up a school radio station so very cool taught them how to how to do the biz uh we won't get into the era uh or your favorite songs because that might date uh, date someone but um what what did you learn how did you get better as a dj how did what were the tricks of the trade to make sure that people were enjoying themselves dancing things like that what did you learn yeah yeah Interestingly, there's a strong connection to teaching and DJ work because if you're going to be a good DJ, you need to speak to your audience. You need to do and play what they want to hear, what makes them happy, what gets them involved, what gets them excited, and makes them want to be a part of that evening. And it's the same in teaching. Your your job is to engage your kids when you're a classroom teacher and to make it relevant for them and get them enthused and excited about what they're going to learn. Uh, same thing with your teachers. Your job is to get them into the whole teaching game, get them out there, get them working, having a good time. Because if they enjoy what they're doing, they tend to do it real well. And so, you know, the DJ, and it also made me darn good at running assemblies. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> little mic work, eh? Yeah, a little bit of microphone work and uh, yeah, a lot of fun. That that sounds like yeah, um, you did learn a lot. And let's move into the actual teaching bit. Uh, a lot of people do call teaching a calling. Um, was it just the DJ thing, the, that experience that, that made you think about becoming a teacher? What, what were some of the things or what were some of the experiences that you had that made you consider education as you moved into university? Well, I'll start at a touch earlier for you, and, and that's because the whole teaching career, and I consider myself very lucky to have always wanted to be a teacher from the time I was in grade three and the magical voice of Mrs. Petrie as she read Charlotte's Web. And to this day, I can't watch the movie because it's not the right Charlotte. It's not <laughs> Miss Petrie's voice. So that certainly, you know, developed, although I was, I was good at school. Uh, school was a lot of fun. And I mean all aspects of school, the learning, the after school stuff, the before school stuff. So I always enjoyed the environment. And I got into a lot of things uh, in a volunteer capacity with youth groups, with uh, parks programs, with camp programs, got to work with youth, got to help them uh, do some pretty cool things and saw that they responded well to me and that just put the icing on the cake and said, you know, you want to be a teacher, so go do it. And that that got the ball rolling. So you, you did your undergraduate at the University of Victoria and uh, despite what I have heard recently, uh, I Back in the day, jobs were not so easy to find uh, on the island. Where did you end up uh, teaching? What was your first teaching uh, position? Yeah, again, another good story there because when I did the interview piece, of all the divisions in British Columbia that were could possibly hire me, only two came to conduct interviews, and they were only collecting resumes because there were no positions. I did get shortlisted for a couple of positions in Smithers and Fort St. John, and I finished second in both because they didn't think a Victoria boy could adjust to a harsh northern climate. <laughs> so I, I packed up the, the stereo, the beanbag chair, like all good bachelor boys do, and I drove up to a lovely place called Fort McMurray, Alberta, where initially I was just going to do some subbing until something came along, and something came along quite quickly. And my grade five uh, teaching career started at Beacon Hill School in Fort McMurray, where the average winter temperature is about minus 25, dipping down to minus 55 uh, with the wind chill. So those districts that didn't hire me because they didn't think the Victoria boy could handle it, (laughs) I always wanted to send them a picture of me in my Fort McMurray garb, but I didn't do that. (laughs) So thinking back, uh, so you're obviously out of your um, known area, um, for those that don't know, Victoria is probably the warmest, most temperate climate in Canada, and Fort McMurray is quite the opposite. Uh, fairly remote. At that point, um, this is before a lot of the development that we know about Fort McMurray, so it's gone uh, through a lot of development. What were, what were some of the things about Fort McMurray um, that you really enjoyed? Because I imagine there wasn't just about the cold. And, and what did you learn in those first few years that, that has really kept with you um, and informed you over the course of your career? Well, you know, getting to a, a city where uh, I walked into the first school where I was just volunteering before I actually got my first, my first job, and I thought perhaps I'd walked in on the uh, summer staff who were cleaning, etc., because everybody was so young. And that's when I found out that Fort McMurray was a very young place, a very young town at the time, very young city. 
Um, and that was actually the teaching staff of the school where the average age was 28. Uh, unlike Victoria, where I had been born, raised, and, and done my training, where the average age was probably closer to 58. So that environment, uh, not only was it young, but because everybody was in the beginning years of their career for the most part, you know, we made mistakes. And we learned from those mistakes, and nobody jumped down our throat on those mistakes and said, okay, hmm, just try a new technique here. And we would. And so, you know, I think that Fort McMurray time, that, that initial first five years of my teaching career, I learned a ton by making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I also ended up learning something that I probably didn't recognize at the time, but I do now, is how well the administrators of the day that I had handled my mistakes and how they built relationship with their staff and how they made sure that, yeah, you tried it, it didn't work, or you made an unfortunate comment. They always kind of had your back and they built a real strong culture in the school. So you felt supported, you felt like the work you were doing was important and that it mattered. Uh, and it was it was really easy to start building. And that's where I first learned some of the skills I practice now in building relationships. Any any favorite mistakes that are uh, that are shareable on a on a family friendly podcast, or or any stories or, or things that you know things you can think of of one of those mistakes that that you felt supported and that you learned from? Well, in terms of there were a couple of mistakes that I thought were uh, were, were pretty pretty colossal at the time. Um, and one, you know, when kids do things that you don't expect, or you find out that you have a little button on the back of your head there, and then when people press it, you get very upset and very angry. And, you know, one time I remember a young fellow, he just made some derogatory comments about another student, and I turned and kind of pivoted and put him up beside the wall and said, hey, and... After I finished, I went, I think my teaching career's just ended. <laughs> I, think, I, I think I'm done. But part of, I guess, the, that area in Fort McMurray, etc., I, I guess got a blessing of the time. Well, I don't think it would happen these days, but a blessing of the time that the parent actually said, boy, I'm glad you actually set him straight because he shouldn't be talking that way. And, doing it. and it was kind of interesting. I, I still, to this day, would call that a mistake. And, and you yeah. certainly don't, you don't put hands on kids and do those things. But... Uh, you know, when you're young, impetuous, and 22 years old, uh, and you know, you find out you had a button. So, I, I guess I learned really quickly there that you take a breath and you decide how to react and you think through. You don't just react to those situations and you think about the kids. So, learned a lot from that. Uh, also learned that you you don't speed going down the hill to your classroom in the mall session and get pulled over by one of your student's fathers who's an RCMP officer and knows where you're going to teach his kid in the mall. That's probably a mistake too. So <laughs> I, I learned that as a teacher, you're expected to follow all the rules, including the speed limit. So it didn't stop there. Uh, obviously, you had a, a very successful career as a classroom teacher and uh, moved around a bit. And now let's jump forward to, to when you uh, decided to take on a leadership role in a school. And, and let's go maybe right to a more formal leadership position as an assistant principal or principal. What were some of the things that you thought going in, being a, an assistant principal or a principal, was going to allow you to do? 
why did you want that position early on before you were in it? Yeah, I think the, the key to being in any leadership position is you have to believe that you have something to offer, that you can make a difference and help others to make a difference. Because for me, leadership has always been about service to others. Um, I mean, there's lots of literature, and I'm sure you're familiar with much of it, on servant leadership. And it's something that I subscribe to and try to practice in all of my leadership roles. And it's why I turned down my first uh, administrative position, because I didn't feel that I had enough experience as a teacher that my colleagues would have respect for me and believe that I understood what they did day to day and would be able to help them improve. So I, I thanked the division personnel who, who wanted me to apply and, and to take the job, but I didn't take it. And so my first formal role was after I'd been uh, successful in the classroom and had good 10, 12 years of, of successful teaching and moved into an assistant principal's role out in Prince Rupert on the coast of uh, British Columbia. Uh, when we had a principal depart and an acting role came up and it kind of started there. Mm-hmm. Um, the plan was five years as a vice principal to learn, you know, the, the ropes and see how things go. And well, that turned into a move from Prince Rupert to Onaway uh, in Alberta, just outside of Edmonton to the west of, west of Edmonton. And then thought, okay, four more years, learn this vice principal job, this would be good, and then the principal moved up the ladder, and I became the acting principal the next year, so so much for the uh, well thought out and well laid out plans of, of learning the administrative game as we go, kind of got thrust into the principalship um, in a bit of a hurry. So about a year and a half. Yeah, about a wow. year and a half as a VP, and all of a sudden, you're the guy, and... <laughs> And so what does that look like? I mean, you're, you're looking around, uh, you, you, you'd only been half of a year at this school, in this community, even in back to the province of Alberta. Um, what did you do to, to, to think about your next steps to, to move forward? Well, Corey, I did something that, you know, you and I have worked together and you know <laughs> that uh, I, I, I do often like to talk a lot. So I did something very unnatural for myself and I listened a lot. And I felt that probably the most important thing I could do is find out about this new community that I was in. And not just the school community, but I, I taught in a rural school. It was a very rural area, and I needed to understand that community too. So I did a lot of listening, and I spent a lot of time in the hallways talking to kids, talking to teachers, talking to parents. Um, it did mean a lot of weekend hours, uh, filling out paperwork or doing the other things that a principal has to look after. But... I spent pretty much the entire first year, year and a half, uh, keeping the school running from the managerial side, but building relationships, building knowledge, building community. And I think more than anything else, that served me well, uh, not only with that group of, of students and staff, but with that you know, community at large. I... One of the things that I appreciate about you, Randy, is I, is I actually think you do live that whole relational piece. Um, it, it's evident that you that you value relationships. Where do you think you learned that skill? What 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 did how how did you come to to believe that? Was it experiences that you had? Do you think it was innate? Was it something that you had to? Uh, you, you said you had to kind of think about it more and and, and talk less. 
what were some of the tips that you would say to others or you would give to others about making sure that you're building relationships in a school? Well, relationships uh, are very individual. And every relationship with every individual is different. And more than anything else, you have to invest time. Uh, If you're not willing to be present with people, if you're not willing to spend time to get to know them and actually want to do that. And I think that that's probably the key. And I, I think I learned that in my coaching, early coaching days, uh, coaching alongside my father and, and coaching some teams on my own and building those relationships with athletes and with, uh, with families. Uh, I learned that if you, you listen carefully and listen so that you can hear their stories and let them share with you and then be present with them uh, when you're, you're having those conversations, not checking your cell phone, you're not uh, <laughs> thinking about the appointment you've got to go to in the next 15 minutes, you make time. And, and simple things, like as a principal starting out, building those relationships, my head secretary and I, we, we made the understanding that I don't take appointments from anybody. The half hour before school starts, mm-hmm. the lunch hour, and the half hour to an hour after school ends. The superintendent, of course, you know, can come whenever they want. <laughs> <laughs> but... Otherwise, you literally set that time aside because that's when your teacher can come and talk to you. That's when they're available. That's when the parent is picking up the kid. And you need to be available during those times. If you're not, if you're always in your office with the door closed, and it's pretty hard to build relationships when you're not out there and observing what they're doing and they know that you know what they do all day. So you build these relationships, and I imagine after a certain amount of time, you, you got a sense of... Um, what you thought was the direction the school needed, what the next steps were. How did you balance that vision with perhaps what the staff thought their direction should be? And what I mean by that is oftentimes you see things as a newcomer that, that maybe they don't. And, and we often have this, this discord or, or this, um, I don't know, this tension between what the principal sees or what the school leadership sees as the direction for the school and, and that what the, the, the staff sees. How, how did you, did you have that issue or, or I'm sure that you've had that at one point. How, how do you mend that? How do you reduce that tension? Well, it, it's not that every decision I've ever made, everybody's always agreed with and, and with open arms and go. But Corey, this is something that I know you know uh, well yourself. When you are talking about a school vision and a community vision for that that group of of people. It's about our vision. It's not about my vision. I may see things. I may see what I see as necessary. And I have to ask myself, well, what did I see that made me think that? So there's data there. There is some information there. And so you have to be, and this is where the skill comes in, and leadership is a skill, you have to find a way to bring that data forward in a way where people feel that they're not being blamed, they're not being accused, but you bring the data forward so that other people, through discussion, through interaction with that data, they come to the understandings of what needs to happen too. They see the need arising from the data, arising from the observations. They see what's needed so that when you either suggest or embellish some of their ideas or work with what they've come up with, 
to get the train moving in that direction. It may not be the first step you had envisioned when you started putting this together, but it's a step towards where you want to end up and where you, you believe they as a group need to end up as well. And that way the vision becomes our vision. Mm-hmm. It becomes something we as a group are working towards. Uh, and even in my own doctoral research, when I was talking to superintendents, the most effective superintendents are the ones who talk about what we are doing, right. not what I am doing, but what we are doing. And I think that's more than anything else, that's the key, and it takes time. And that's the part some folks aren't willing to do. They, they don't want to invest the time. They want that vision to go. And I, I've had folks at Central Office who wonder why I don't adopt things as fast as others, why I don't take on a new program or a new initiative as fast as others. It's because I take more time to allow all of my folks to understand why we might need to go this route, why it's going to help, why it's going to make their jobs easier, and why it's going to improve the outcomes for students, which is the bottom line for all of us. Now, now looking at your experience, one of the things that I think is very interesting about your, your experience at Onaway is that it was rural. Um, you were fairly close to a major center, but, but not. It was a small community, and, and, and most of the people that you were serving were, were not living in a, in a large urban area. What do you think the particularities of working in a rural setting are, um, especially in, 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 not in opposition, but in contrast to what, what people who live in big cities and work in big cities might, might have as an experience as a, as a school principal? Sure. Yeah, I, one of the things I've come to understand about rural schools uh, very carefully is the school is much more than a school. It, it's their school. And it often can be the hub of so much more activity than just what happens during the school day. Some of the parents might have been married in that school. Some might have celebrated major family events in that school. Uh, all kinds of, of memories and traditions and things follow. So the school, because often in a rural setting, there's only one. It is the school, one elementary, one high school, or sometimes just one. And you have to understand how integral that school is to that community. And therefore, you need to build trust. And the way you build trust with the rural community is you show up at those hockey games at the rural arena (laughs) and you have those conversations. You make sure you shop at the local store and pick up those few items that you need. You could pick them up at Save On Foods or the big store on your way home if you live out of town, but you don't. You pick them up there. I mean, I chose to live in that community. It's something that I personally believe that if you live in the community that you teach, it helps you be in touch with what's going on in the school and all of those things. Uh, others might disagree with me on that and, and think it's better to be separated, but I think in rural situations especially, you'll never build the trust if they don't believe you're authentic and actually care about their kids, care about their community. And in many ways, you have to make yourself vulnerable. You have to show that, you know, when something doesn't go right or you make it, you just apologize right up front and show, hey, folks, yep, uh, we could have gone about that a different way. I'm really sorry about that. Here's what I think we're going to do to change. And, you know, the rural communities respect that. You know, they're, they're involved. They want to support their school. They want to support their community. And so if they think you're pretty straight up and that you walk the talk 
and you're there in their community. They see you in their community. You're there for their big parade, even though it's not a really big parade, but <laughs> you're there watching it like anybody else or judging the best in the show. Yeah. Make those efforts to invest in them. And I'll tell you, nothing better than when they turn around and invest in you and invest in that school. You never have any problems getting support for field trips, for the special events, for anything you need to do. They've got your back and they're there. So, Randy, you've uh, recently moved to Portland. Tell me what brought on that move and what you're currently, where you're currently working and what you're currently working on, maybe. Well, the, uh, the move came about largely because family first, and uh, both my wife and I have uh, aging and ailing parents that were out on the coast back in Victoria, being uh, where we were born and raised, and so we needed and wanted to be closer to them. And I was at a stage in my career where I still felt I had a lot to give to education and a lot to uh, still put into leadership in different ways. And so the opportunity came to utilize my doctorate and uh, apply for some academic positions. And the University of Portland came up, and of course, as all good husbands will do, I made sure my wife was willing to move to Portland because that's where the position dictated. (laughs) And I knew of the university because they had operated a, a master's cohort in the Edmonton area uh, for about 30, at that time it was about 30 years and now it's on to 32 uh, and they were looking to start a doctoral program there as well and so they needed someone who had a background in Canadian curriculum and as a leader in uh, Canadian schools, specifically Alberta is what they were looking for. So you know the ad just kind of spoke to me but as with all things, you know, you, you apply and, and go for the interview. And when I got there, the thing that made the University of Portland stand out over a couple of other applications I'd put in. Most people know that universities, when they're looking for academic staff, most universities evaluate their academic staff on three pillars. They look at their research, they look at their service, and they look at their teaching. And in most universities, especially the the research-heavy universities, it's research first, service second, and teaching, and your quality of teaching, and that third. And, you know, that's not just my opinion. You can find many a a folk who are at those universities, and they'll be right up front about that. That that is the focus. Uh, The old publisher parish, I believe, was the phrase. And UP was different. And it was the provo at the University of Portland, uh, Dr. Green, who sat me down and wanted to make it perfectly clear that the university was proud of the fact that they, their graduates, their teacher candidates, were amongst the first to be picked up by school divisions in the state. They were highly uh, sought after because they were well-trained. Uh, and they did great work. And the leadership candidates, the principals and vice principals, because they are certified here and they have to go through a certification, an initial and then a continuing administrative licensure, they too were highly sought after. And he said, I can't continue to run those kind of programs and have that reputation if I don't have the best people teaching them and doing a great job of the teaching. So at this university, teaching comes first. And I have to tell you, that resonated with this 34-year teaching veteran slash administrator to, to know that teaching mattered, uh, mattered to me. And so when they offered me the position, uh, it was a lot closer to the family we needed to be to, uh, be close to. And so I accepted. And so now I find myself as an assistant professor in the School of Education here at the University of Portland, specializing in school leadership and uh, curriculum and implementation and some of the foundational 
aspects of the doctoral program as well. Now, you referenced your uh, your doctorate earlier, and, and it's kind of what brought you uh, to the University of Portland, gave you the credentials to be able to teach there. Um, I know you, you looked at uh, system leaders, uh, specifically superintendents, and around decision-making. Sum up some of the, the big points, and, and I realize that this is an extremely difficult thing to do, is to, to sum up uh, three to six year, years of work in, in, in a little bit. But what were the biggest takeaways that you, that you found in your doctoral thesis? The, the superintendents that I spoke with in my research, and I, I really wanted to know why superintendents made the decisions they made. What did they take into account? And because often as a principal, you know, I didn't agree with some of those decisions. And I, and I wanted to know, as I found out as a principal, you know, there's a bigger picture. So I wanted to know what that bigger picture was for superintendents. And I think probably the largest takeaways uh, that came from that research was superintendents who felt that they were successful, who felt they made a difference, all spoke to building a relationship with their staff and establishing clear, we'll call them boundaries, we'll call them the sandbox. We're all on the same beach, but we all have our own areas of sand that we look after. We can advise and collaborate across those areas of sand because we're all working on the same beach. But making sure that everybody knew what was expected, knew that they, the superintendent had their back and would support them in their work and give them opportunities to move forward. And so they spoke a lot to spending the time to make the right decision. And interestingly, decision-making is on a continuum, as you know. It starts from that fully participative, where you allow everyone to have their voice and, and decisions are made by consensus and those things, right up to the other end of the spectrum, the authoritative decision that gets made, and it gets made by the person at the top of the decision-making hierarchy. And you know, none of those are bad or good. Sometimes decisions need to be made in an authoritative manner, sometimes in a collaborative manner, sometimes in a consultative manner, and sometimes you have the time and you should take the time to do things in a participative manner. And if you allow the decision, whatever it is, to dictate how it needs to be made, and then communicate that clearly to the people that you work with and work for and whose opinions you're asking for, then even if they don't get to make the final decision, they know they're just advising or consulting and that you're going to make it, they're okay yeah. because that's what you told them up front. And they know that you might go this way or you might go that way and you're consulting them for their expertise. That seems like quite a skill to be able to identify the type of decision-making process to use for different decisions. Did, did the superintendents you spoke with um, mention that this was a skill they had developed? Did they say that it was something that that just was intuitive? Well, how did they say they chose uh, between, I think you, you outlined four different ways of making those decisions? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think amongst the superintendents that were part of my research, they differed on that. Mm. And the ones who felt the most comfortable were the ones who did not feel the pressure of time as much. And that was the other probably major finding of the study but it wasn't a surprise, is they felt pressured by time. And you remember those old quadrant diagrams we've all grown up to, and you've got, you know, what's urgent and not urgent, and what's important and not important. And what a lot of the superintendents found was a lot of stakeholders were 
making certain decisions seem urgent, especially earlier in their career as superintendents, whereas later in their career, they realized those weren't as urgent as they needed to be, and it was more important to take more time because they were really important decisions to make. And so I don't know whether it's something that they just sense or know or a skill, but they came over time probably through making mistakes, yeah. you know, and, and trying to do something too quick, not consulting enough people or the right people or and making mistakes. I'm sure they probably learned some of the feelers to, to see and to notice and to pick up on that tell you this is one of those decisions. And a great case in point was the ever-popular changing of boundaries and bus routes and boundaries for schools and bus routes. Uh, always a fabulous topic in a division. But one of the superintendents who had the most success took a lot of time and was criticized for it, for taking a lot of time at the front end to consult everybody, to show them the planning, show them the process, show them what's going on. Now, did everybody agree with the final decision when it came down? No, that'll never, you'll never get that. But nobody complained because they all felt that they understood how the process went, why the decision was made, it was the best alternative at the time, even though it wasn't the one that personally favored them. And so all that extra time at the front end, they didn't have to spend fighting the implementation of the decision at the back end. And so I think that's what they found was was so very, very important. What I find interesting about that story and, and that study and that finding is that it, it mirrors a lot what you had had learned in your um, early career as a principal at Onaway. It sounds very much like what you said earlier about coming to a new school, trying to get a sense of the vision and building those relationships, taking the time to listen. Did did you consciously did did, did you consciously make that? Ha, have you made that link? Because it sounds uh, very much very similar. Maybe this is a a truth about education. You know, I, I think it's. Perhaps a truth about education, Corey, but it's, I think, more a truth about community. And just like the rural school in Onaway and the school and, and the, the town and the surrounding area was a community that needed to be heard and listened to and, and be part of, so too is a school division. And as a superintendent or as a leader mm-hmm. uh, in any of those roles, you have a community. And if you look at it that way and you're present in that community, and so decisions don't seem to be coming from someone they don't know, don't trust. You know, make yourself vulnerable, be a part, ask the questions, take the time. It's a community. And communities are built on relationships and trust. If you've got those relationships and they trust that you will be the same person today as you are tomorrow or the person you'll be next week or next month, then you're going to have people who are going to support your decisions even if at the time, they don't necessarily agree or think that it's the right decision. They're willing to go with what you've put in front of them because they believe that you're authentic. Yeah. So let's move from the end, superintendency, maybe the top of the of the decision hierarchy, to down at the bottom. And so um, I, I know that one of the roles that you have at the University of Portland right now is working with new teachers. Um, what are some of the common lessons that you're seeing? What are some of the, the, the big takeaways that you would like to impart to your new teachers? Um, and, and perhaps what are you seeing as some of the common struggles as they make their way for the first mm-hmm. time into classrooms? You know, teacher education in, in many ways 
they, they say education in general hasn't changed a lot in, in, in decades and classrooms still look like classrooms did. And, you know, part of good effective training hasn't changed. You still need instruction in the methodologies, how to teach science well, how to teach language arts well, how to teach history, whatever your, your discipline are. But you also need to understand how to teach children well. Because as I tell all of my classes that I teach, and I ask them, what do you teach? And they all say history or drug. I say, no, actually you teach kids. And you teach kids history or you teach kids, but you, you teach kids. So that that part hasn't changed. We need to teach folks how to, to manage their discipline and do the strategies and techniques for that. We need to teach them how to build community. It used to be called classroom management, and many still call it that, but in my view, and I still tell my students, you build community. Because if you have great planning and great teaching, you will have a great community. And you then won't have to manage much. <laughs> Which leads me to what you talk about, challenges. And that's where I think it really, this is where the rubber hits the road. Both, I think it hit the road years ago, but it is much more prevalent now. And that's teaching those special populations, those kids who are a little bit different, those kids who are at risk, uh, being a culturally responsive educator, being a trauma-sensitive educator and understanding the backgrounds that your kids come from, the cultures that your kids come from, the family structures, those things, knowing enough about them and understanding, and here it is again, building relationships with your <laughs> kids. If you do that, you understand them, and then we need to teach our brand-new teachers how to do that. How do you get to know your kids? It's one thing to just say, you need to get to know your kids. Mm -hmm. But I think now in our teacher preparation programs, we have to show them how you do that. Because it doesn't come naturally to all of them. There are, some are better at it than others. Uh, some are better at the teaching methodology and not so good at the relationships and, and some vice versa. And we need to help both sets of those folks learn both sets of skills because I think they're both absolutely critical in a classroom. Having spent most of your career in Canada, in in Western Canada, uh, I think it, I think I think you have to kind of triage Canada as a pretty big place, uh, and now moving into Oregon, what is one of the things that you would say that you saw down in in, in Oregon that that impressed you the most? I'm talking not necessarily about their um, the University of Portland that you've spoken to. Uh, but when you're looking at their education system, uh, the schools that they have there, what is what is one thing that you would say, hey, uh, Oregon's doing this well? Well, I guess uh, in terms of what they're doing well, in order to, to get it right, I'd have to say first and foremost, um, and it's something that I'm sure people believe worldwide about being in the United States and working, there's a bit of a competitive spirit. There is certainly that desire to be the best at whatever you do and to not just settle for something, but to be the best. And I guess what has struck me and what I take away and now I bring back either to Canada or to any of the discussions I have with, with teachers or, or fellow uh, academics in other circles uh, about Canada is it's the approaches we take in order to become the best. And some of the approaches have been very, very good. Certainly the, the United States in general and uh, Oregon uh, is one of those that have benefited us, have 
a type of funding called Title I funding, which says, hey, we've got schools that are really struggling. You know, fair isn't always equal. They need more. They need intervention. They need something to not be struggling anymore and, and to make it better for the students who live in that area and attend those schools. So their support structure that way and where they direct their funds is designed to, to help them improve. Does it always work? Well, it always butts up against the infamous standardized testing and the testing regime and the accountability regime, and there's a disconnect. And it's certainly not true just in the United States. There's a disconnect in, in, in Canada still in that regard and in Australia and a few other places too. There's a disconnect between our belief about the best teaching and pedagogy and the best way to assess kids based on their individual needs and the standardized testing regime we seem to have to adhere to in order to prove to somebody somewhere that we're being accountable uh, to those standards and to the, the things that we want for all kids. And you know, in, even in teaching the curriculum that I'm doing now, and I'm teaching a course on curriculum development and implementation, and we're discussing why curriculum reform doesn't seem to work well and why it seems to drag on and on and on. And it is those conundrums, those dichotomies between what we want and know and believe is good teaching, but yet we still want to assess it and measure it and weigh the pig in so many ways to prove that we're actually doing what we're doing. And we spend so much time not doing it, waiting to figure it out, that nothing actually happens. And that's where folks like Simon Breakspear, I think, are doing some of the uh, the newest and, and, and some of the more exciting things right now with the Learning Sprints movement and getting people to set a target and let's get started. And we will, we will tweak it and we might make some mistakes and we'll learn from them and we'll move, but the bottom line is we get started. And, and I think there's much more to Learning Sprints. You're very familiar with that, I know yourself. And, uh, but that's where I think we've got to go to get out of the being stuck in the mud. You bet. Yeah, and I, I absolutely agree. And you know, even the idea of this adaptive expertise to be able to target your problem and, and get it. So that, I appreciate that. The next question may or may not be related to, to what you were just talking about, but but I think it it's one of the more interesting questions that I like to ask people, and that's, is there something about education that you believe is true, but that most people would disagree with you on? Hmm. Well, there is one. Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to apologize for it, and, I, and I'm not going to soft soap it. Uh, I have always viewed teaching as a profession. And by definition, a profession puts the needs of their clients first. And that has caused me, and as you know, I have been very active both in British Columbia and in Alberta where I've worked. I've always been uh, an active contributor to my local professional association, especially the Alberta Teachers Association. I've really enjoyed working with, with that group. And sometimes there are moments where that being a professional and then dealing with the, well, how long am I here? How long is my work day? When does my work day start? When am I officially on to And we start to argue about minutes and seconds. And I know that that comes from a, a long history and, frankly, a lack of trust on both ends of the spectrum. And it frustrates me to no end when someone comes, and maybe it's a staff member and I'm the principal of the school, and they say, is it okay if, 
and then you can fill in anything else after that. But it's a bottom line that they know what they're asking is not particularly professional, but it serves their need at the time. And my concept always is, if you are a true professional, the needs of the kids come first. Now, do you need to look after yourself to be able to look after the needs of the kids? Absolutely you do. We're not talking work-life balance here. Uh, We're talking about some of those niggly things, those behaviors, those attitudes that are really about what's good for me and not what's best for my kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they're pedagogical decisions, sometimes they're time-based decisions, and I know you in your administrative career have bumped up against a few of those from time to time. And, and that, I won't say it infuriates me, but I'll tell you it does raise the hairs on the back of my neck because I, I, I do hold teaching very high. And I hold very high standards for myself and and for the folks that I work with. And I never ask them to do anything that I'm not doing myself. Could you give me an example of perhaps one of the nigglies that you you said? Just to illustrate perhaps your example, maybe give it... I I know you you have a range of things, but... Mm -hmm. What sure. is one particular example that might might get people a better sense of what you're talking about? Sure, and and, and I'll do I'll do two if you don't mind. No so problem. I'll do one, that's, one that's instructional and one that's not, but both are equally important. We'll start with the instructional one. Pet peeve number one is when I'm out doing supervision in my school, and I love to get into classrooms and see teachers work the magic that they do and all those great things, and then I share it with other teachers. It's one of the joys of being a principal. But when I see a teacher give something and then use that instruction time and let the kids are just working and the teacher's at their desk marking or perhaps doing other things, this is the most valuable formative assessment time you've got with your kids. This is where you can walk around and find out, do they really know what they're doing? Do they understand it? Are they going down the wrong path? But the time you have with your kids in class is invaluable. It's not the time to be sitting at your desk catching up on marking because you attended something the other night or whatever it happens to be. And so that's one of those nigglies that I have no trouble walking in and asking kids, you know, what you're working on? And sometimes it's not what they're supposed to be working on. And a teacher would know that (laughs) if they're up and about with their kids. So that's a pedagogical one. Another simple one that people say, oh, that's just little stuff. Why do you worry about it? Teachers who arrive moments before the children or sometimes moments after and it's always well I guys you know all the excuses you can put into that I think as a professional you want to make sure that what your parents see what your kids see is you at your door greeting them every morning stuff is prepared stuff is organized because that's what professionals do not all the kids are lined up at the door everybody else is in and the teacher's coming running down the hallway because they didn't leave enough time or whatever it happens to be Now, a one-off, fine. We're talking about the folks who do that time after time after time. And they are the first to say, well, I couldn't, I can't. I don't know. To me, it sends a bad message to your fellow colleagues and teachers who are there on time. It sends a bad message to the parents who see you arriving after the kids as they're driving away. It's just not good for school culture. It's not good for kids. It's not good in any, any aspect. So... You know, there are those who don't see it the way I do on that one, Corey, and, and they've had no trouble telling me so, but that that's the standard I hold teaching to. Talking of standard, when 
when I say the word or the term master teacher, is there, what comes to mind or is there, is there someone that comes to mind? What are the characteristics that, that, that you see, uh, about a master teacher? Good question. For me, and, and someone that I know, I think you've met uh, a couple of times, or certainly listened to a couple of times, Todd Whitaker, uh, in his presentations on what great principals do differently and what great teachers do differently, he, he refers to a group of teachers that he calls the superstars. And they're the people, and they're the ones who always go the extra mile, always want to find a better way. They're the teachers who, when the kids don't learn, they don't say, well, I gave him an opportunity to learn, he just didn't take it. If kids don't learn, they take it personally, saying, "How? what didn't I do? What could I have done different to help that child learn? What could I change? What will make and improve what I'm doing? And you know, those teachers would not call themselves master teachers, because <laughs> that's just who they are. You know, they're not the ones who would who would blow their own horn or, or say that they're, they're the superstar, they're the... Uh, the best teacher in the school, they don't make those comments because they are always looking to improve. They're always asking for opportunities. They're asking for um, you to come and watch the practice and give them feedback. They're willing to be vulnerable. To me, those are the master teachers. And, and it can vary. They can be in the shop area. They can be in the English classroom. They can be in the elementary, K-6 group. They can be in any one of those teaching positions. And, uh, and we, had, we had a couple of people who I just think uh, that I've worked with over the years who have fit that to a T in all of those areas. Now, I wouldn't want to insult any of the others who are out there uh, because I've met many and I don't want to forget by starting to name names. I will no. throw one out there just in case by God's gift she happens to hear your podcast because she's returning to the teaching profession after uh, some time raising her family. And uh, I hired her as a brand new first year teacher and I have never seen anyone work magic with kids through questioning, through inquiry, through different methods, organization, professional. I mean, the young lady had it all. So if you're a principal out there and you're listening to this and Patricia M. Theron is available for hire, <laughs> she is one of the best science teachers I have ever come to know uh, in, in my career. And uh, you would be well suited to pick up that master teacher. Do you have any uh, favorite failures? Now, now what I say by that is, you know, favorite failures, we'd say failure, but it's also a lesson. So do you have any experiences that you have had or that you have lived that perhaps in the moment you thought was wrong, that was bad, that was a failure, but you have come to know and to cherish because it's informed your future decisions? Oh. Probably not one specific but one category for sure uh, and it's a category of failures now that makes it sound like I make them a lot <laughs> but uh, the reason I call them a category is my job as a servant leader is to get obstacles get misunderstandings get things out of the way of my teachers so that they can do their magic they can do what they do best and make learning and make great things happen for kids. So my job is to to make sure those things happen. And when I don't, and when it's through, you know, yes, I guess I could have put in, you know, I could have gone that little extra and got that done for them. And I see 
how it affects them emotionally, professionally, or in, in their confidence in what they're doing. Uh, and case in point, you know, one day I came back from an administrator's meeting, and to say that I wasn't happy with how that administrator's meeting went would be an understatement. And perhaps I, I had a, uh, a look on my face, etc. And as I was entering my school and coming in the door, one of my superstars, the ones you mentioned, one of those master teachers, the ones that have great ideas, was bounding down the hallway. And hey, can I talk, Randy, can I talk to you about? And they saw my face and saw the, the physical image that I put forward that I was in a terrible state of mind. And that teacher turned around and, and never came back. I, to this day, don't know what that great idea was. I don't know what it was. They felt that I couldn't be approached to be asked about that. And, you know, that I realized that seconds after they bounded away. And I resolved to myself that day. So you talk about learning. I never come into my building or when my staff come up and they ask me, how are you doing? Doing fantastic. How about you? <laughs> Things are going great. How can I help? And, and they deserve that, and they need that. Yeah, there are things in the principalship that aren't always go right, and as you know, as admin teams, we have discussions behind closed doors and sort those things out so that we can come out united and positive and give the teachers what they need in order to do what they do. And so, yeah, that was a failure. I mean, that I brought my own disappointment and my own issues, and I brought them back into my school. And, mm -hmm. and that really was, uh, from my perspective, a failure and should never happen. I'm going to ask you a few questions uh, where, where I'm looking for a quick response now. Um, I call it the lightning round. Uh, Ooh, okay. I wish I, uh, it's a, uh, I, I'm not going to lie, I didn't come up with that. Um, <laughs> number one, favorite education-related app or website? I'm not going to let you take me down the tech road, Corey, <laughs> because you know that I believe technology <laughs> yeah. is a tool. So what I will say is whatever resource, and that could be an app, and that could be a piece of technology. If there's a resource that is going to make learning easier or make it easier for kids to experience success or to communicate, then whatever that app or resource is at that time, at, for that kid in that moment, that's my favorite app of the day <laughs> or my favorite resource of the day. Number two will be much more up your, uh, in your wheelhouse. Thank goodness. What is a book that you quote, refer to, or have marked up the most? A book? Well, I'm not sure how much I've marked it up. I have one that's a, a personal book about yourself and getting to know yourself. So I've marked it up and I've read it several times because it helps me. And it's a, a tall town legend, actually, uh, called The Four Agreements by Ruiz. And, and it's one... That, that I have to read myself over and over because I believe rule number three, if memory serves, is don't take it personally, which is something that is a, a, a shortcoming that I have. When I disappoint people or where things don't go, I take it personally, and I really kind of take it to heart. And so that book I do. But the one I think that even more so applies to my leadership and my servant leadership that really helped, and it's one I've shared with... Um, with many is not a scholarly tome. So if you're looking for a Hargreaves and Shirley or you're looking for one, you're not going to get it. You're going to get Who Moved the Cheese. And uh, Who Moved the Cheese helps for me 
to explain to people that change is personal. And I have given many workshops on a number of topics, and I've given lectures in various places, and this is a standard part of everything that I do, is if you can understand as a leader that when you change things, when things change, that it is personal for the people who are being asked to change, that it may seem like nothing to you, but it's a big something to them. And if you can understand that, then you are going to be valuing those relationships again, and you're going to have a whole lot more success. And who moved the cheese helps people to understand that change is going to happen, and it gets them that little bit uneasy about, well, what do you mean the cheese is going to move? You know, are you saying that I'm resistant to change? And they start doing introspection, and they start thinking, and it, it gets people to a place where they're willing to listen, willing to hear. And so who moved the cheese? Yep, you won't find it on uh, the top 10 uh, Harvard Review uh, book list, but uh, when it comes to leadership with your staff and leadership with people, great parable. <laughs> What's one thing that you do that keeps you well or healthy? <laughs> you know, I, I, I probably look at it this way. I have missed one half of one day of work or school since I was four years old due to, due to illness. Trivia fact number one. And largely because I make sure that I'm well rested. And so as much as, as hard as I might work during a day or whatever, I make sure, if at all possible, I do not burn the midnight oil. When that time comes, and the hour has changed as I've gotten older, we've gotten a lot closer to nine <laughs> Uh, than we have, say, 11. But uh, the, the all-nighters yeah. and the working late doesn't do it because, you know, when you're tired, then you don't have the patience you should have. And when you don't have the patience you should have, then you damage relationships. And I think I've made it pretty clear how important relationships are in my work. So probably the key to my success has been sleep <laughs> and making sure I get it and get, stay well-rested. Good point. What's an organization or a person that inspires you? I'm inspired by teachers. And I yeah, have I heard some great keynotes over the years? Have I heard some inspirational speakers over the years? I absolutely have. And they've all contributed to who I am and, and what I do. But I don't think anything has inspired me more than seeing students take risks, feel safe, answer questions, and grow under the direction of an amazing teacher. And if there was ever a gift of becoming a principal and that ability to go into classrooms and see those kind of things happen. So, you know, those real people in the trenches doing the do, my administrative colleagues, you among them, and, and you know a good colleague of ours, Bryn Spence and Marcy Fisk and a few others, some great people. And, and they inspire me because I see the great work that they do. I say, you know, I need to add that to my repertoire. Mm -hmm. I'm constantly learning. I don't profess that all of my skills and things that I use were my, of my own creation. I, um, I will shamelessly steal from all of these people and say, wow, look what they did. That's something I need to, to make a part of what I do. Mm -hmm. So what's next for 
Dr. Randy Hetherington. What uh, what are you working on at the University of Portland? What what are some of the projects that maybe outside of academia that you're working on? What can we look for from mm-hmm. you? Well, the, the, the professional writing piece uh, is, is starting to come along. Uh, I'm getting establishing contacts in my new home in Portland and building relationships. We have a lovely partnership with uh, six of the school divisions, and we're looking at what makes teacher preparation programs effective, what makes them so I'm getting to follow our graduates into the field and watch them teach as first-year and second-year teachers and find out what in our program worked for them, what didn't, what needs to be changed. So I still see myself as being able to help make better teachers and help them be the best they can be, which benefits students in all of their uh, in all of their shapes and sizes and diversity situations. So on the professional front, there's probably that. Uh, I hope I've got another good 10 to 15 years uh, in me to keep doing things. Uh, so I need to keep in touch with, with those systems because the worst thing is someone teaching others how to do something that they haven't done themselves in an awfully long time. So we'll keep in touch that way. And maybe, you know, a golf game or two in there uh, <laughs> might, well. might be a good thing. That'll keep me well, too. So uh, I, I still want to keep giving back to the profession. So, Randy, how can, uh, how can people connect with you? Uh, they hear this and, and they want to get updated. Uh, I know you're not the uh, the biggest tech guy. Uh, is there a Twitter account? Yes, indeed. That's the only thing you've got. There, there okay. is no Facebook. There is no Instagram. There's none of that. But there certainly is. Um, it's at uh, R.W. Hetherington. Uh, that's the Twitter handle, and Hetherington has no A in it, just so you know, that's the rich side of the family, I and I definitely it. do not come from the rich side of the family, <laughs> so that's, uh, that's where it's at, and Twitter's a good, a good way for me to also keep in touch with what's going on around the world. I follow some, some key people who I respect and, and uh, admire for the work that they do, and uh, learn from them constantly, and occasionally share a, a thought or two myself. Uh, or at the University of Portland, you can just look me up in the School of Education and all the email contact and that stuff is there. I actually do respond to emails, so <laughs> there you go. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for talking to me today, Randy, and uh, nothing but the best. Hey, thanks, Carl. Pleasure. That's it for my conversation with Dr. Randy Hetherington. If you like this episode, connect with Intersection Education at our website, www.intersectioneducation.com or on Facebook or Twitter. It also helps us out when you rate or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back soon with our next episode.